Hello, audiobook fans. Welcome to another episode of Harper Audio Presents. For the first time in our show's history, we're bringing you a conversation between two authors. Juliet Grames and Catherine Chung are authors who have a strong sense of family and bring their curiosity about family history into their work. Their latest novels, Juliet's The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna and Catherine's The Tenth Muse, take elements of life and turn it into art. As you'll hear in the conversation, Juliet and Catherine have a wonderful rapport. They talk about their work, motherhood, and so much more. So please enjoy Juliet Grames and Catherine Chung in conversation. I loved Kathy Chung's The Tenth Muse because it, I mean, it's exactly the kind of book that I'm looking for at any point of time, which is a, a smartly and and immersively wrought uh, character who just brings you so intensely into their day-to-day experiences that you feel like you're there with them. And um, so the main character, Catherine, is born um, in the early 1940s, I think. So she's going to university in the late 50s, and she is a math specialist. And so being a woman in this era, cut, cutting this territory, for herself as a a professional academic, um, a mathematician in a field that's really dominated by men. Um, And all of her incredible strength and struggles with that professional pursuit and then Kathy's incredible math writing, which makes this fascinating, is all, I would say, almost secondary to the incredible um, narrative that unwinds over the course of the book about Catherine's past. We know that she is growing up in a small suburban community in America and she's raised by a single dad who is a white guy and she was abandoned by uh, her Chinese mom when she was 16 years old and her wrestling with her identity and also with the true story about how her parents came together is this incredibly poignant and just wonderful a second or even first story that runs along the course of the book. So there's just so much here to love. And I read the book in text form and I'm really, really looking forward to listening to the audiobook because it definitely bears a reread and I can't wait to see how the narrator interpreted it actually. So yeah, it's a great book. Thank you so much. Um, I actually loved, I loved your book so much. Um, the Seven Great Deaths of Stella Fortuna. I thought it was so big in scope um, that I wasn't sure how I would be able to talk about it. I thought how it, it has so many things in it. It covers more than a hundred years. It's about history, but it's also a recasting and reckoning with history. It's so timely to our present moment where we are looking at all these stories about women's lives and unearthing secrets and telling stories that, you know, we we haven't told before. And I thought, I mean, actually, so I have a, a question um, for you, which which is, as, as I was reading it, I was, I was just astonished at its range. And I wondered if you were thinking about the present moment as you were writing this history that has all these like wonderful small details about life in rural Italy, but then also just covers, you know, two world wars, shows us the way in which history has its way with women. Um, yeah, was was that something you had in mind? I that I had a story I really needed to tell, and I knew the framework of the story going into it. So 
I didn't set out with an axe to grind, but I will tell you, as I spent years working on this novel, I found I had so many axes to grind. Uh I had so many things I wanted to say, especially about um, immigrant identity and uh, the American dream and what it costs, especially the very common people um, who I think a lot of Americans, we, we have this immigrant past that, you know, we may or may not know very well. And I, I just wanted... In my case, my family came over recently enough that it was living memory and I got to, um, my, I heard all my grandparents' stories about emigrating, but I, I just, I wanted to talk about that so much. And I wanted to talk about women's lives and I wanted to talk about unattractive women's lives, like w- women who have done things that are not what women are supposed to have done and the, the price that they paid for it. And I mean, those are just some of the things that came out of really getting entrenched in a novel and, and writing it over so much time. So I'm I'm very grateful that you found those what, there. What I thought was so interesting is that I felt like you did more than tell the, the living history. It's almost as if you had sort of excavated this history that had been buried by this family, right? And that if the narrator or you hadn't started digging around, it would be lost and all we would have left is, is the stories that people tell. Which is something I think must fascinate both of us because your narrator also does a lot of personal history excavation. So let me turn that same question on you. Did When you went into writing The Tenth Muse, did you have something you really, really wanted to say? Or what, what was, I mean, all of those incredible points you make about... Oh, you know, when, you say that you went into your book without an axe to grind. And I think I went into my book with an axe to grind just because I am in general a grumpy person. <laughs> awesome, um, Which is always embarrassing to admit. But I think that... When I started the book, I was thinking, I guess, a lot about the ways in which women are often dim- diminished mm. um, and not, I mean, like maybe not to veer totally out of the world of our books, but I was I was thinking about, you know, I think I had read an article about how women are punished for the same um the same things that we see as strengths in men. Mm. Um, so when men are assertive, women are seen as being sort of like bitchy or too aggressive. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I think that I also started the book at a time when we were having that conversation in literature about unlikable right. women. Oh. And yeah, oh, my favorite. Yeah, and I just sarcastic. Thought, you know, like <laughs> what woman would pass the test of being likable right. um, if yeah. they were sort of rendered in their full humanity? It's yeah. like I just think people have grumpy thoughts. I mean, maybe this was just, you know, my desire to write a woman who is as grumpy, if not grumpier than I am, um, but also maybe more talented so that I could I could live out this fantasy of her still getting to do all the things she wants to do. Well, I think Catherine in the book is, I really admire her strength of not being grumpy in so many situations that I find to be incredibly unfair. And she, the, way, the way she kind of takes them upon herself and and perseveres, I found really inspiring. Uh, so, yeah. Thank I, you. I think I actually, I, I mean, I think I began the book out of a, gr- you know, in a grumpy mood. But mm-hmm. what I discovered is that for people to do anything, they have to sort of rise above their circumstances. So there was a way in which the, narr- the narrator, the character um, made me be a bigger person than I actually, than I actually am. How did you come to write about a mathematician? Um... 
I guess I wanted to write about a smart woman who was kind of nerdy. Um, I think that when I started writing this book, it was also around the time somebody had said to me something like, you know, if you want to be likable, then you can't sound too smart as a woman or mm. you can't be too intellectual. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm just going to write a book about a woman intellectual. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So that was my axe to grind, although I'm not sure that I ended up, that I ended up grinding it. Um, Did you always know from the beginning that, that Catherine was going to have a secret history that spins out over the course of the book? No. I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't listened to I the did, audiobook yet, but... I did not. So um, compelling. I did not, but I, I I wanted to actually bring this back to something you had said earlier about your desire to write about immigrant families. Mm. Um, and as you were talking, I began to wonder, you know, I think when you grow up, you know, where your family history is, there's a way in which secrets don't remain hidden. Mm, yeah. Right. And so yes. like even in the beginning of your of your book, Asinta, the mother of mm -hmm. Stella Fortuna, discovers something mm -hmm. about her family simply because she sees it. Yeah. Right. But when you leave your, you know, the mother country behind and come into this new country, there's a way in which your entire history is lost except through the stories that the people that you have access to can tell you. Right. And so I really actually appreciated um, reading about the ways in which you went back to this village that um, Stella's family comes from and did all this digging in yeah. these records because I, I do wonder if one of my central preoccupations about family secrets has to just do with the fact that I'm an immigrant. Ah, uh, that is so... I So I am an Italian-American and the book, um, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, half of it is set in Italy, yeah. in southern Italy, in Calabria, which is the one of the regions that my own family came from. And I definitely... Um, my entire life was very interested in Calabria's history and I found it very difficult to read about because there's just not very much written. And one thing that has um, frustrated me as I tried to research uh, this book and make sure that I was really well read uh, all around the topic was how little is written about the Italian-American experience that doesn't fall into kind of one of two categories, um, either very playing it safe and celebrating all of the... Um, you know, all of the accomplishments and achievements of, of the community, but not necessarily looking at any of the hardships or darker elements. Mm -hmm. um, or on the flip side, to only talk about, like, how terrible the Italian South was, <laughs> uh, which is another one of my axes to grind because I'm very interested in the Italian South and I think it's a beautiful and misunderstood place. But, you know, I, I won't go into that now. So I, I wanted to bridge something in between where there were human characters like the ones I know in my own family who show you how, how much um, value there is in, into an individual story and help through that context understand this very difficult, fraught, um, sometimes wonderful and sometimes really terrifying history of an impoverished region um, with its, a lot of tribulations of its own. So, and I think all of, all of that is part of the immigrant story for me. I think, I think when the idea of someone getting on a boat and going to a place they know nothing about, where they don't speak the language, where they may die en route, depending on, you know, what the time period is or how they're getting there. Or um, I, it's so 
gut-wrenching to me, that idea. And so many, I mean, all of our forebears did it, right? Right. Uh, so that that was, and I think you, to understand how someone makes that desperate a choice, you have to understand where they came from and what, what they were leaving and why. Um, and then also when they get to America or wherever their destination is, why and how they miss that place and how it forever changes or defines their own identity and their children's identities. So that's definitely something that's really um, very, very interesting to me, that preservation of the culture we came from and also the identity as an American. Um, And the conflict between those two, which you really beautifully illustrate. I, I mean, that was so important to me. And again, I, I have to be really careful. I don't want to spoil anything in your book because it's the unfolding is so wonderful. So readers should enjoy this. But I have a feeling that that dual identity is something you thought about a ton in your in your of writing. Of course, <laughs> and it was something that I was playing around with the whole the whole time. What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to not have access to your whole history and mm. to be digging around for it? And what I was actually astonished, I feel like we're just going back and forth yeah. and volleying, but actually as I was reading your book, there was a way in which I thought, oh, the you know, it's so specific to this particular family, and it's so specific to um, not just it, you know this Italian family, but this this um, family from Cal- is it Calabria? Cal- yeah. Calabria. Yeah. And but I also thought, gosh, like it feels so close to the way that I think of um, my own experiences. And I think earlier I said I was an immigrant, and then I realized I am actually just the daughter of immigrants. <laughs> um, I was a stowaway when my parents came to the states, um, <laughs> but I. I thought you just did such a beautiful job of talking about the things that I hold closest to my heart, which are, you know, ideas about dislocation and connection and how do you live in a country when your values are sort of old world values, right, that are constantly Mm -hmm. in conflict with sort of the things that are available to you in this new country. And, um, you know, there are such heartbreaking moments in your book where the characters just don't know things they mm. don't know things they don't they don't you know and I don't think this is a spoiler um I was telling Juliet earlier that I feel like just a giant walking spoiler <laughs> for this book um but you know there's there's this moment where you know Stella as a new mother she doesn't know like how Americans think of it, like you know early childhood progress and yeah. so she doesn't realize that yeah. her child isn't walking right um right when when he should be, you know, she just doesn't know. And she doesn't have the people around her yeah. to, to tell her that. And I just thought that that was so emblematic of the constant struggle of this family to gain a foothold yeah. because it's sort of like you don't even know what the rules are. You don't even know how to be measuring um, your progress or, or where you stand or what you should be doing. That isn't a spoiler, is it? No. Okay. No. I mean, I think a really good novel like yours is spoiled whenever you talk about any element of the plot because every sentence unfolds <laughs> so nicely from the previous sentence. Uh, so so I, I do want to turn this back to you if you can talk about it without spoilers, about your character, Catherine's search for her identity. How, how do you, how if you're pitching her personal journey in this book for a reader who doesn't know what the book is about, what, what, how do you describe what she's looking for? And then after you, you do that, can you tell how, how you came to that decision to, about her identity? And but, Okay. Um, okay, so now I'm a giant walking spoiler for myself. <laughs> um, I think the great sort of 
wound or tragedy in Catherine's life actually is that her mother leaves her mm-hmm. when she is a teenager. And she, but it's it's not just that. I think that before her mother leaves her, there's a way in which her mother is sort of mysterious um, mm-hmm. and unreachable. And yeah. I remember as a child that feeling that, you know, no sorrow is greater than the feeling that you cannot... Um, that you cannot sort of help heal your parents' um, sorrows, right? Wow. And so I, I think, um, I think that for Catherine, she never really understands what is wrong between her parents mm-hmm. and what is what is sort of missing between herself and her parents. Mm-hmm. You know, why her mother can't stay, mm-hmm. why that that love isn't sort of big enough, mm-hmm. right? Or I, I think that that would be how she would formulate. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing that she longs for in her life. And so I, I think that her search for her identity in part is is the search to sort of understand why her mother left, mm-hmm. right? And and I think like in that search she discovers she discovers other things, right? She discovers, for instance, that the story is never the story that that you're told, right? Yeah. There's always a story running underneath yes. it that runs everything, and I guess you could call that story history. Then yeah. um, it's it's larger than the personal, and it's always tied up. I think, um, especially with immigrant stories, but I actually think with all stories, mm-hmm. you know, like your your personal story is always tied up with the story of your community and the story of yeah. you know your the country or however people organize themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I guess her search for her identity becomes this larger understanding about how the forces of history um, and and sort of like nationhood or community shape what happens in her life. And I would, I guess, like to add too that I I hope that part of what she discovers is that, you know, like that, that wound that she feels mm-hmm. that like is she's been misunderstanding it the whole time. It's yeah. not that her mother didn't love her enough, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's something else. Oh, I think the payoff is epic. Because I, <laughs> I, I, I was exp- I was expecting part of the payoff that I got, and then you just pulled the rug out from under me, and I, I was amazing. So that's, yeah. I wanted to actually ask Julia a question about her audiobook. Oh, if yeah, that's please okay. do. Yeah. I, I mean, so like, actually, this question that I've been wanting to ask is that your book is so sweeping, and it has so many different, I it, like, I see, again, I can't even have the words, but right, the, it covers so much history. There are acts of just sort of brutal violence. Um, there are also sort of hysterically funny moments. And I thought that the thing that I loved the most maybe was that the narrator's voice was so sure and deft and and light um, and that she goes through really difficult material with such just a a gentle touch um, that is also humorous. And I was so excited actually um, thinking about how this is going to be rendered as an audiobook. And I wondered what, you know, like what y- you were thinking about when you heard that there would be an audiobook made, like what your concerns or priorities were in how that would be rendered. I'm a huge audiobook listener. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so this was something. It was like a dream come true, to, you know, to learn there was going to be an audiobook. And then um, when HarperCollins really nicely and asked me to participate in in some of the very, very minor, uh, you know, choices about its production, that was really, really exciting for me. And I was concerned, especially about, there's a lot of Calabrese, um 
I'm going to use the word dialect because that's what it's called, Calabrese dialect in the book. I, in fact, will make a different argument that Calabrese is a language and not a dialect, but <laughs> what, that's for a different day. And it doesn't look or sound like mainstream Italian. So I really wanted... Um, I wanted to make sure that those words were pronounced correctly, as correctly as I would not call myself a speaker of this language, although I was raised by um, my grandmother and my great aunt who took care of me when I was a little baby. So my my first words were in Calabrese, which drove my non-Italian dad really nuts. He's like, oh, she's asking for boom, boom. I don't know what that is. It's (sighs) Calabrese baby talk for water. You know, I mean, so I can understand it pretty well. And I have spent a lot of time in Calabria and uh, researching the book, but I wouldn't call myself a speaker. Speaker. But I I did want the words pronounced correctly. Um, of course. And uh, then I got to vet um, some of the narrator options. Um, and Lisa Flanagan, just she really popped out for me. First of all, I knew um, I learned she was an opera singer, and her yeah, I know. And she and and she absolutely could uh, pronounce these Italian words, which was terrific. But on top of that, I I when I heard her voice, I thought, oh, this is someone who could do that the modern narrator that you reference who has who tells the story um and sound modern and uh, but also lend a little bit of gravitas to the historical stuff that happens a hundred years ago i just thought she was so perfect and i've heard her audio clips um of the recording and, and she did just such a, an amazing job so i'm just so happy with it um and i'm also grateful that uh harper collins let me submit an entire excel spreadsheet of words <laughs> pronunciation guide <laughs> and that lisa flanagan uh tolerated that and used that uh pronunciation guide and it just it the, the book is so well edited and i'm just really grateful that's wonderful i can't wait to listen Okay, so I'm interested in how you said that you are a huge audiobook fan. Earlier, before we started recording, you had mentioned that you got more and more into audiobooks as um, after you had a newborn. You have a newborn. And um, I was, I, I didn't add at the time that I got into audiobooks when I was pregnant because I was nauseous and I couldn't read. And mm-hmm. so actually my entire pregnancy, I basically just stayed as still as I could and listened to um the entirety of Harry Potter, actually, which was wonderful. And when my audiobook was coming out, I thought, oh, man, I haven't listened to it yet. But what I thought was, oh, man, the next time I write a book, I'm going to write with a whole bunch of British people and and French people <laughs> and Korean people because I just want all the accents <laughs> in there wonderful. speaking English because it's the most delightful thing. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you if there are any other ways in which having a newborn has sort of changed your experience as an author and a writer. I mean... Having a baby, I was prepared for this because I, everyone had told me this, but it's still, it wreaks havoc on your short-term <laughs> memory, especially the sleep deprivation, right? And I, I knew going into it, I was like, okay, I am a writer. What will happen if I lose my words? What will I do if I lose my words? And sometimes I do lose my words. And I, I just, you know, my baby is currently six months old. So we're in kind of sleep deprivation, you know. yeah. Zone. It's, yeah, the first sleep regression, I think, between months four and six. I feel like we should just have a podcast on that. But I will say that I, I'm i glad I wrote Stella Fortuna before I had a baby because there were parts in it that I wrote through research that as a mother— I think would have been much harder to write. Oh and my God. As a mother, they were so difficult to read. I have found that it is so hard. I've totally interrupted you, but yeah, I feel like no, I need to tell you that this, yeah. that you traumatized me yeah. um, because 
because that you know now when I read anything in which a child is in any kind of danger, yeah. I can't bear it. Oh, totally. But the thing about that, and I'm grateful I did it when I, I was, you know, I was like, oh, is it disrespectful to write about a mother who goes through this when I haven't been a mother myself? And uh, and in a way, I feel like having a baby adds kind of to my my. Um, you know, platform in being able to tell this story because I, I'm glad our our foremothers did go through things like this, and I I really want to honor their experiences. These in the hardships that they had to endure and the the lack of knowledge about pregnancy and childbirth. And I mean, I agree. Being a mom has made me a different writer and a different reader, um, both in terms of format. Just you know, as you mentioned, practically, audiobooks are are easier at night when you know he's sleeping yeah. and I can't turn the light on in my room. But uh, but also. Um, you know, in terms of how we react with content, that yeah. has changed. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put in a defense as a writer. We're, we're told that we lose our words, and maybe sometimes we do. Although I'm not gonna, you know, that's off the record. I have all my words. Um, <laughs> but I was reading a study in a couple months ago. I think it was in the Guardian. There's a journalist who specializes in kind of women's. She does a lot of things. She's also a literary translator. Her name is Maureen Freely, but she has written a lot about motherhood and the creative mother. And I read something she wrote about how um, you actually get new neuron connections in your brain after you have a baby because in order to keep your baby alive like there's all those survival instincts you actually have to think creatively about things you've done your entire life in a certain way and so a lot of women writers go on to write differently and or more creatively after they have a baby and I think a lot of the great prize winning female writers you'll notice have had children so it do, it didn't ruin them <laughs> I mean a, a yeah, lot of and I should say I wrote most of my book while I was pregnant um, and I edited the like the entire editing oh, process you're... happened after I gave birth so you're an inspiration well, no but I I do I feel like when I was pregnant everyone said you know you'll never you won't work for the first two years and it just mm. wasn't true and so what's your advice then to to women writers who are in the throes of this you know brain zone Oh gosh, I don't know that I have any advice. I, but you know, I, I I'm sure that you have noticed too that even though you lose your words in conversation, mm. when you write, it's like you enter some deeper, quieter place mm. in which you kind of have access to your words, yeah. right? It's do you, yeah. do you have that too? I mean, I I think it's in the real world, yes, where I lose words and I'm sleep deprived. Yeah. But when I when I'm writing or when I'm working and in sort of a quiet place, it's it's not like our writer selves, and maybe I'm wrong. For me, it's not as if my writer self has that much relationship to who I am as as a person in the world, having mm. a conversation with my girlfriends. Yeah. Anyway. Has have you found that to be different or have you been writing? I admit I have not done a ton of writing since having my baby. But that's because you have a book coming out. You know, like tomorrow. So we'll see. We'll <laughs> yeah. see. But uh, but I'm I'm very heartened to hear your take on it. And I do think it's an important part of recognizing women in history and and female characters that that they a lot of them either went through what we're talking about now or may have had other difficult um, child and family related issues. Uh, right. There's always life. Yes. Right. Life always yes. gets in the way of yes. writing. And I will say, you know, I found a tenure track teaching position to actually mm -hmm. be harder to write through than pregnancy and harder sort of to edit through than um, than having a newborn child. And mm -hmm. I will also say when I was pregnant, I went to a residency where there were, oh my God, four new mothers, you know, between, with children between the ages of six months and two years. And they were there 
working. Um, and some of them had more than one child and they were incredibly productive. And so I think there are all these myths that are out there to discourage writers from writing or women from working mm. that, y- that you get so anxious about. Yeah. But if you... If you look at the world, I think it is clear that there are women who are mothers who are just doing it yep. and killing it all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have a game for you both today that I'm very excited to try out. You were both very careful to not have any spoiler alerts while talking about each other's books. So now, luckily... We're going to do a bunch of spoiler alerts. <laughs> um, so we we know that, and, and I love this title. I love the title, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. So we're going to do a game that involves almost that many deaths in it. This is spoiler alert. So we're going to play five different clips from very popular audiobooks. They are titles that you will recognize. And they are all clips where a major character dies. <laughs> And we want you guys to tell us what the title of the book is. So here are the rules. I will play the clip. You have to wait till the entire clip is done before you can ring in. You ring in by saying your name, and then whoever rings in first gets an opportunity to guess what the title of the book is. (laughs) I have a feeling I'm going to get trounced because Juliet is leaning forward. Yeah, she is like, I'm a a little bit competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should let her win. Like, otherwise, this could get really. I know, really, otherwise, like, it might be the like, seven or eight deaths of Tacky <laughs> Yeah. Great. So, we're going to start with clip number one. Tom had been given due process of law to the day of his death. He had been tried openly and convicted by 12 good men and true. My father had fought for him all the way. Then Mr. Underwood's meaning became clear. Atticus had used every tool available to free men to save Tom Robinson, but in the secret courts of men's hearts, Atticus had no case. Tom was a dead man the minute Mayella Ewell opened her mouth and screamed. Kathy Chuck. <laughs> that was the most the most timid ringing ever. I, I wasn't sure that it was over and that maybe I would be um, you know, penalized. You no. Yeah, but I, think- I feel but I feel like I feel like Juliet and I exchanged eye contact <laughs> at the exact moment that we both knew that it was definitely from To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, that's actually incorrect. <gasps> no, I'm kidding. It's it's totally <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. To see SpaceX was the one reading that. Oh wow! Yeah, I can't believe you just let me say my name like that, Juliet. I thought you were gonna. It's I, it's that I baby saw. brain, you know. I guess no, it's taking you the knew. competitive you edge knew. off. I, I think, just wanted you I to feel, feel like good it was actually. Out. I think it was too easy for you. You were like, oh, I can't. <laughs> For her, a win only feels like a win if she, like, lets you get ahead and then, like, comes from behind. That was why my name was spoken so timidly. I was just kind of like, I don't understand why Juliet hasn't screamed her name into the mic yet. I I think this entire game is going to come down to uh, the timing. It was off my game. It was off my game. Okay. Ready. Ready for the next one. Bring it on. Number two. We need buzzers. I wish I had buzzers. I'm going to buy buzzers for the next time. We'll have you come in and I'll, we'll spoil a whole bunch of other books. Okay. We'll do the same time okay. next year. It'll help with the good. aggression, I think, yeah. when you're physically <laughs> slamming something down. Yeah. Okay, this one's number two. She shuddered as she remembered Anthony Marston's convulsed purple face. As she passed the mantelpiece, she looked up at the framed doggerel. Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self and then there were nine. 
she thought to herself, it's horrible, just like us this evening. Why had Anthony Marston wanted to die? She didn't want to die. She couldn't imagine wanting to die. Death was for the other people. Julia Grames. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the modernly accepted title. Yes, please do. <laughs> and then there were none by Agatha Christie. That is correct. See, I knew it was Agatha Christie, but I had no idea what book it was. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. That one was read by Dan Stevens. And I will say that that one is really fun in audio because if you know the story, there are many, many characters who yeah. are body and he doesn't accent for each one of them. Uh, it's totally see, different. It's the dream. Yeah. Yes. You just got to write something British. We'll get Dan Stevens in there. <laughs> okay, here comes number three. We're all tied up. Here we go. Violet and Klaus looked at one another nervously. Who in the world would want to visit Count Olaf? Maybe someone wants to visit us. In the time since the Baudelaire parents' death, most of the Baudelaire orphans' friends had fallen by the wayside, an expression which here means they stopped calling, writing, and stopping by to see any of the Baudelaires, making them very lonely. I have a feeling neither of you have read this series no. before. Is it the is Lemony Snicket? It is the Lemony Snicket, so... But I, what is it? Unfortunate, a series... You, you a got series it. series of very unfortunate events? Is that, what is the I'm going to accept See, that. Okay. You added one word, but that's it's fine. Okay. We'll put you on the board with two. I was going to try and say, like, oh, it's unfortunate you guys didn't know that series. Uh. Um <laughs> So that was the... The ba- I feel like if either of us had read it, whenever we the name known. comes up, we would know who it is. I was hoping that Count Olaf would be the, the Oh, yeah, no, away, no, totally okay. haven't read it, yeah. Um, that one was narrated by a full cast with Tim Curry, was the, the British voice you oh, heard uh, in that well. one. Yeah. Oh, and here, let me say my name, because I just busted in there. <laughs> it's Catherine Chung. <laughs> Great. Uh, so we got a 2-1 lead. We got two left. So you got to sweep okay. both of these to get the, the win outright. It'll be more exciting that way. <laughs> All right, here we go. Oh, I'm excited for this one. Oh, God. See, he's done trotting off toward the house. Then it hit me what Mama was getting at. All my insides froze. I couldn't get my breath. I jumped to my feet, wild with hurt and scare. But Mama, I cried out, he saved my life. He saved little Arliss's life. We can't. Mama got up and put her arm across my shoulders again. I know, son. She said, but he's been bitten by a mad wolf. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) I feel like I've heard Arliss. I guarantee you've both heard this or or read this or heard of it before. Arliss. Mostly I thought Forrest Gump because something about (laughs) the way that I heard it. Thinking of the accents I think will help. Um, Yeah, it it is something the main character has just been bitten by a wolf and is going to be put down. The character is going to be put down? Julia Grames, mm-hmm. Old Yeller. That is correct. Ah! We're a tie. <laughs> only because of Oh, wow. I cheated, I cheated. <laughs> I've never even seen the movie. The main character is a person and they're going to be put down? No, no it's, it's a, a dog. dog. The main character is a dog. Yeah. I've oh, seen. I'm, I feel I'm so like sorry I've... that we actually just spoiled Old, old Yeller for <laughs> you. <laughs> I feel like I've either read or seen the movie of Old Yeller. So it's kind of astonishing that I forgot. But you know what? Yeah. It's the I've lost my memory. It's well, just I'm hanging so on by a thread. Yeah. yeah, it was so traumatic that you just blocked it out. <laughs> she was just letting me 
yeah. catch up with her so that now yeah. it's an actual competition. Well, that's great because we got one left. Oh, dear. And I think it is easily the hardest one. Uh, so this might be a tie. We'll see. <laughs> All right, here we go. Sha, what is it? It's Karis, Father Karis, Sharon cried out hysterically, racing from the room. Her face ashen, Chris got up and moved quietly to the window, looked below, and felt her heart dropping out of her body. At the bottom of the steps on M Street, Karis lay crumpled and bloody as a crowd began gathering around him. Is it The Exorcist? It is The Exorcist for the win. I, I was like, Karis, I was trying so hard Father to Father Karis, it. yeah. Ah. Yes, the context helped. And then I was like, damn, the stairs. Why did I not? Yeah. It, it, it the only... Exorcist only because it sounded like there would be an exorcism yeah. involved, <laughs> yeah. but I've not, I've not read the, yeah. the book uh, or no. watched the movie. No, I've seen the movie. I haven't I've read the, the book, yeah. Yeah, so the, the only kind of way I feel like they would have got it right away is if you knew the, the steps. The Karis and the steps. Yeah. The steps, yeah. I did, but I forgot. That's okay. It's, I grew up really close to those steps, so like it's like impossible uh, for me really? to, to forget. Yeah. See, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. That's okay. <laughs> Go home and watch The Exorcist I can't tonight watch with your scary, kid. It'll I be great. can't watch the scary things. <laughs> but it's a little bit silly. It's like silly scary. It's like that vein of horror where you're like, oh. Yeah. I will say the audiobook say is straight up scary. Uh, that no. was also written or read by the author, William Peter Blatty. He really gets into it. Wow. Yeah. So, Juliet, you are our winner. You came back from behind. (laughs) Just barely. I'm not sure I feel good about my victory, and I'm looking forward to round two, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I will will pull a lot of kids' books because for whatever reason, those are the books that people just tend to die in, (laughs) which is kind of, I don't know what that says about us. I'd like to request accents. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Good, good request. Thank you again to Juliet Grames and Catherine Chung. The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna is on sale now, and The Tenth Muse is on sale June 18th. We're going to play clips from the audiobooks for both of those titles a little later on in the episode. But first, buckle up. It's time for a new segment on the show called Word Nerd with Fometa Sawyer. Hello and welcome to Word Nerd. Word Nerd. Word Nerd. The segment where we discuss how to say things. My name is Fometa, and I am the resident word nerd here at Harper Audio. Part of bringing you the stories that you love to listen to is making sure that what's on the page gets read correctly into the microphone. Sounds simple, right? Well, easier said than done. If you're anything like me, you come across words all the time that you've, one, never seen before, two, have seen but have never heard aloud, or three, have heard said a bunch of different ways by a bunch of different people. You said kibosh differently than I said kibosh, should I? I did? How'd you say it? I didn't say it, but I do say it differently. No, you did say it while we were eating lunch, and I noticed, but I didn't say anything. Really? How'd you say it? Kibosh. Yeah, that's how you said it. Yeah. That's not how I say it. What's correct? <laughs> Word nerd. Word nerd. That lovely voice you just heard is audiobook producer extraordinaire Jennifer Lope. Say hi to the folks at home, Jennifer. Hi, folks at home. Okay, so Jennifer, would you say that you are pretty good at figuring out how to say unfamiliar words, or do you just usually have no idea what's going on? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Okay, that's fair. Um, but don't worry. Today, I'm going to make it pretty easy on you. Uh, you're going to help me with some pairs of words that I like to call commonly, commonly confused. confused. 
You look a little confused right now, but don't worry. I'm excited. Okay, good. This is my excited face. <laughs> confused, excited. Worried. Same face. Got it. Cool. I'm going to read you the definition, and I'm going to have you try to tell me the word that I'm thinking of. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But don't worry if you just have absolutely no idea. I'll just I'll just show it to you so you can read it for our lovely listening public. Okay. Okay. Word number one. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. This is an adjective, and it means reserved, modest. Also, affectedly modest, reserved, or serious. Coy. Do you know the word I'm thinking of? No. Okay. You'd probably hear it a lot in romance novels. Shy. <laughs> starts with a D. Word that means shy that starts with a D. See, I told you this I is I was going to say another word. <laughs> I don't see that. They use a lot of other words to describe that word. They do. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, so we'll make this fast. I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. Um, let me show you the first one. Hold on. Demure. Demure. Say say one more time. Demure. Is that your final answer? I mean, that's how I'm reading it. Okay, great. You are correct. <laughs> All right. So second word, since this is commonly confused, it's probably going to sound similar. Maybe be spelled the same. Maybe not. We'll see. But it means, it's a verb, and it means to take exception, object, often used with to or at. No. <laughs> All right, so let me write it for you. The word is not no. That's the same word without the E. How do you say it? Deemer. <laughs> is De it deemer? It's not deemer. Is what it is it? Demur. It is demur. I always write the second time. And those are commonly confused. Yeah, one is an adjective, word. one is a verb. So someone can demur yeah. or be demure. Interesting. All right. So you're getting the hang of it? Yeah. All right. All right. Let's move on to pair number two. We're going to start with a verb. Actually, they're both verbs. But dishevel or rumple can also be a noun. A tangled mass as of hair. Tangled mass of hair. A knot. No. Starts with a T. Tangled? Tangle? No, not tangle. You do this to someone's hair. Twist. Tie. <laughs> Good guess. Let me spell it for you. It's tossle. Tossle? All right. For the <laughs> folks at home, this is spelled T-O-U-S-L-E. Tousel. Tousel. Thank you. That is correct. <laughs> Tousel. Tousel. All right. So similar. Here's our second part of the pair. This is a noun. A physical contest or a struggle. Or an intense argument, controversy, or a struggle. Tossle. <laughs> no, I'm just going to guess the same You're word. just going to keep and saying tossle? All right, so. Tossle. The first one was tossle. Tossle. Tossle? Tussle. Tussle. Final answer. It's tussle. Going through all the. <laughs> all right, so what is it? Tussle. Tussle. Um, this is also very commonly confused. Especially in audiobooks, because those romance people love to tussle, <laughs> tussle with tussle their, their tassels. They end up with tousled hair after tussling <laughs> with one another. There you go. See what I did there? Woo! This is my job. All right. I think I'm sweating. 
feel the pressure. Okay, and on to pair number three. Are you ready? Ready. So this first word is a verb, and it means to ransack and rob, or to search and rob, or to plunder or strip bare. Ransack. Did you say ransack in the definition? I did say (laughs) ransack in the definition. (laughs) Well, it does start with an R, so there you go. Rassle. Rassle? Is that your final answer? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It is not rassle. It is... Razzle-tazzle. Razzle-dazzle. Razzle. Rifle? Rifle. Rifle through. I'm glad you said that because our second in our commonly confused couple... Is to turn hastily as through a stack of letters or pages of a book. Rifle. Rifle? Is that your final answer? Okay. Riffle? There you go. It is actually riffle. I've never. Different words spelled almost the same. There's an extra letter in there. I'm like nervous to say any words. <laughs> Asterisk? 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 Asterisk. I can't speak. That was Word Nerd. Thank you, Fometa. Thank you, Jennifer. I speak for us all when I say I cannot wait for the next installment. Before we end our show today, we're going to play a few tantalizing audiobook clips for your listening pleasure. First up is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames and read by Lisa Flanagan, a narrator who, as we learned earlier, is a trained soprano and sings on the audiobook. It's a tale of family transgressions as ancient and twisted as the olive branch that could heal them, and it's on sale now. Then, you'll hear The Tenth Muse by Catherine Chung and read by Cassandra Campbell. It's a gorgeous, sweeping tale about legacy, identity, and the beautiful ways the mind can make us free. And it's on sale June 18th. The village of Yevoli, wedged into the cliff face on the highest plateau of a moderately-sized mountain in central Calabria, was never very large. When Stella Fortuna was a little girl, in the days when Yevoli was at its most robust, there were only 600 inhabitants crowding into the abutting stone cottages. But when I tell you Stella Fortuna was a special girl, I hope you aren't thinking small-town special. Other people would underestimate Stella Fortuna during her long life, and not one of them didn't end up regretting it. First, there was her name, which no lesser woman could have stood up to. She'd been named after her grandmother, which was proper, but still. Stella and Fortuna. Star luck, or maybe even lucky star. What a terrifying thing to call a little girl. There's no better way to bring down the evil eye than to brag about your good fortune. A name like Stella Fortuna was just asking for trouble. And whether or not you believe in the evil eye, you have to admit Stella had plenty of trouble. I've gotten out of plenty of trouble too, Stella would often remind her mother, Asunta. Asunta was a great worrywart, if not a great disciplinarian. Yes, Stella Fortuna stuck out, and not only for her name. There were also her looks. At 16, when she left Yevoli to go to America, Stella Fortuna was the most beautiful girl in the village. 
She had grand breasts that trembled when she laughed and jounced hypnotically when she tramped down the steep mountain road that cut through the village center. Stella had inherited these breasts from her mother. Her younger sister, Chetina, had been less successful in the heredity department and acquired only her mother's derriere, which, it should be said, was nothing to sneeze at. Stella had clear, tanned cheeks as smooth as olives, and her pursed lips looked as pink and yielding as the fleshy insides of a ripe fig. Essentially, Stella was a fruit salad of Yevolitan male desires. She had her scars, it's true. The crescent cut into her brow and the stitch marks up her arms. But scars became alluring when you know where they came from. And in a village the size of Yevoli, everyone knows everything. Stella was effortlessly provocative and categorically unaccommodating. When she stepped into the street for the evening stroll, the chiazza fell silent, breathtaking. But Stella Fortuna didn't notice or care. The soft curves of her figure distracted ambitious men and boys from the ruthlessness of her dark eyes. And she cut down and made fools out of the unwise. Stella's desirability mattered little to Stella herself. She'd already decided she would never marry and didn't care to use her looks to attract suitors. She scandalized good, obedient Chetina with her rough treatment of the hopefuls. Later, the sisters would spend 30 years locked in a blood feud. It's true, but no one in the world saw that coming. And when they were girls, they were the best of friends. Prospective suitors approached them together because they were always together. You have to be nicer, Stella, Chetina would tell her sister fearfully. She was the younger of the Fortuna girls, but she worried about Stella almost as much as Asunta did. What with Stella's bad luck? It was no wonder. They call you a bitch. Whose problem is that? Stella would reply. Not mine. Stella wasn't exactly vain about her appearance. She had never even seen her reflection in a mirror. But it did give her great satisfaction to know she was the prettiest. Stella liked power, and her charisma was one of the greatest powers available to her. One of the few powers a young woman in a southern Italian village could possibly wield in these years between the wars. Third, she had natural smarts. Stella liked to be the best, and she was the best at most things. She was the best needlewoman in the village. Her silkworms produced the most silk, and she could shuck the most chestnuts during a harvest day's piecework at Don Mancuso's orchards. She was quick with numbers and could make combinations in her mind. Her memory was keen, and she never lost an argument, because she could always quote back what her opponent said better than they could themselves. She was gentle with animals, and even the damn hens laid more eggs when she was the one to feed them in the morning. She was not the best cook, so she did not cook at all. It was important to know your limitations and not waste time attempting to do poorly what you could have someone else do for you. Stella was quick-witted and self-sufficient, not to be trifled with or taken advantage of. She had inherited her mother's discipline and her father's pervasive distrust, which made her hardworking but wily. Stella Fortuna got things done. 
You hoped she was working with you, not against you. Fourth, and this is what her Calabrese village respected most about her, and the thing that got her in the most trouble when she left. Stella Fortuna was tough. Life had tried to take her down, and Stella Fortuna had resisted. Each bad thing that happened to her only made her more stubborn, more retaliatory, less compromising. Stella allowed for no weakness in herself, and she had no tolerance for weakness in others. Except, of course, in her mother, who required special dispensations. By the time she was 16, when she left Yevoli, Stella Fortuna had already almost died three times, hence all those great scars. I will tell you about the Yevolitan deaths now. They have been referred to affectionately by her family as the eggplant attack, that time with the pigs, and the haunted door. They're the weirdest of Stella's death stories, in my opinion. But of course they would be. Everything was a little weirder in a remote mountain village a hundred years ago. Modernity has stripped some of the magic out of the ways we live and die. Chapter One There is nothing as intriguing as a locked door. Which is why, in 1900, when David Hilbert presented the first of his 23 unsolved mathematical problems in his address to the Second International Congress of Mathematicians in Paris, he changed the course of scientific inquiry, and thereby the course of the world. 23 locked doors to beguile the foremost minds of his time. 23 locked doors to stand in front of and circle throughout the century. To this day, 12 of these problems remain unsolved. In my youth, I dreamed of scaling the heights myself and drawing forth a solution as gleaming and perfect as Excalibur. One day, I told myself, I would open one of Hilbert's fabled doors, join the honors class of mathematicians who have conquered one of those 23 problems, whose names will be known throughout time. I've lived long enough to know now that no matter what one's contributions, one falls in and out of favor, even Hilbert, even Einstein. For now, I am in the amusing, slightly awkward position of finding that while my reputation is on the rise, my actual presence, my opinion, my thoughts, are less relevant than ever. I'm invited less and less to participate in things that involve actual math. Nobody asks me to advise or work with them anymore. I suppose everyone is waiting for me to die. Certainly, no one expects me to be on the cusp of a new discovery. But here's a secret. I've recently found a key to a door that has long been hidden, a mystery I feel I was born to unravel. And not just any mystery, 
but a door that could lead to the solution of part of the eighth and most famous of Hilbert's problems, the Riemann hypothesis, which predicts a meaningful pattern hidden deep within the seemingly chaotic distribution of prime numbers. I've told no one yet because I know that until I have all the evidence in order, I'll be laughed at. The same as if I suddenly announced I'd fallen in love. At my age, all passions look foolish to outside eyes. If I were a man, it'd be different. I don't mean that as an admission of envy, but as a statement of fact. Because who has time for envy anymore? The days speed by so quickly, gaining momentum with each passing month. The fear that I'll die before I get to the end fuels my work, and I wake with an urgency that feels like an echo from youth, a reflection of the desperation I felt in my early years when I feared I'd missed my chance. Perhaps this is why I dream more and more of people from my grad school days, my old competitors and colleagues, my professors, and especially Peter. In my dreams, everyone is dying. They lie down one by one in perfectly ordered graves that proceed along a straight line, head to toe, forming a road that points at the horizon. I ask them where this road leads. And each time I ask my question, they smile and reach up to close their coffins, shut their eyes, and die. Goodbye and good riddance, I'd say, if the dream ended there. But then I notice that the closed coffins have numbers and symbols on them. And the string of them forms an equation strangely familiar to me, one that I know the solution to. So I walk up and down, trying to figure it out, whether I should be walking in the direction of the heads or the toes, whether what I need to find is the beginning or the end, until I realize that no matter what, in the line of infinite coffins that stretches out to the ends of the earth, one coffin is missing, and it is mine. And then I know that the missing piece of the formula, the key, is my death, and that I will lose the answer in completing it, and I wake up furious and cursing and filled with a terrible grief. All my life, I've been told to let go as gracefully as possible. What's worse, after all, than a hungry woman, greedy for all that isn't meant to be hers? Still, I resist. In the end, we relinquish everything. I think I'll hold on while I can. My recent discovery is rooted in the work and time of another mathematician named Emmy Neuter and those who orbited around her. It was during her time that we began to anticipate how complex things might get, without yet being entrenched in that complexity. Like standing on the brink of chaos. And what company she stood with on that very brink. It was the time of Bohr, of Heisenberg, Wittgenstein, Gödel, Einstein, and Turing. Quantum mechanics was being born, as was modern atomic theory, relativity, the computer, the uncertainty principle, the black hole, and the nuclear bomb. 
It was an exciting time, but everything was in disarray. There was the rubble of creation, the rubble of destruction. We were at the heights, from which we imagined we could see everything, not just what we knew, but all the possibilities as well. A theory explaining everything and its inverse, the collapse of science, of language itself. We were on the brink of understanding God or killing him forever. We didn't know which. Exhilaration and dread came together, and the knowledge that no great discovery can come without bringing an equivalent terror. It was around that time that Schieling and Meisenbach exploded onto the scene with a brand new theorem that dazzled everyone who read it, and seemed to sketch a possible opening into the Riemann hypothesis. A hypothesis some mathematicians say is too beautiful not to be true and others say would be akin to proving the existence of God. This theorem captured the attention of every major mathematician who mattered then, and was quickly labeled a triumph for the side of order and beauty, an attempt to knit together the chaos. And even after the proof was reviewed and tested, after a public cheer went up, even after Einstein himself made it known that he would like to shake their hands, Neither Schieling nor Meisenbach stepped forward. It eventually became known that Meisenbach had been a student of Noethe's at the University of Göttingen before she was exiled by the Nazis. Though he'd remained there in Göttingen throughout the war and afterward, his partner, Schieling, had disappeared shortly before publication of their paper. In deference to his partner, in silent vigil, Meisenbach refused to appear for any of the honors offered to him. And he never spoke of the man who'd co-authored what would be his greatest contribution to the field. Instead, he waited for word or news of Schilling's whereabouts. Word never came. And so Schilling, vanished, and Meisenbach, silent, were both forgotten, lost to the turmoil of their times. It would be shocking how quickly this happened, given their contribution. But they were working during one of the most exciting times for science, and also the most dangerous. The world order was changing on every level. To quote Newton, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the earnest idealism that had briefly ignited the hearts of students all over the continent of Europe in the aftermath of the First World War had been overtaken by fury and nationalism. The sky was opening. The gods had fallen. Fascism had gained its foothold. Mussolini was leader in Italy. Hitler was on the rise in Germany. The mood of the times was turning murderous. And so the war came, and bombs were dropped, and schools were closed, and the Jews and homosexuals, the dissidents and handicapped, were led away as their neighbors watched on. And so many, so many were killed. Emmy Noether was the first of the mathematicians in Göttingen to lose her job. And she went to America to live and work, where she died very soon after. Göttingen, that haven, that bastion of mathematics and science, was overtaken by Nazis. Current was gone, Klein was gone, 
Everyone who could escaped to England or America. When asked what would happen to the famed mathematics department, now gutted, Hilbert responded, what mathematics? There is no mathematics in Girtening anymore. And such was the loss in the realm of mathematics and science. And such was the loss in the world that no one noticed too much when both Schilling and Meisenbach were forgotten. Until me. I entered their story decades after they were lost to anonymity. Their beautiful theorem referenced and used, but old enough that no one asked any more what had happened to its authors. No one questioned where they'd gone. But now, I've discovered the truth of what happened to them, and why they never published again. And I believe I've found how their work may open a door to the heart of the Riemann hypothesis. Where, if I'm right, I could be the first to go. Harper Audio Presents is a presentation of HarperCollins Publishers. Our staff includes Beth Ives, Fometta Sawyer, Nathan Rossborough, and me, Andrew Caberline. Follow us on Instagram at HarperAudio and reach out to us on Twitter at HarperAudio Presents.